Hello and welcome to Motorsport Week's F1 podcast series, Motorsport Speak, the show we discuss about the latest that is happening in the world of Formula One. So I'm Ken's show host alongside Joe Ellis and Izzy Holman. We look ahead to this weekend's French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard. Four points is still the margin between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen following their, mal- uh, following their maladies in Baku last time out, but Sergio Perez will be flying high after his brilliant victory in Azerbaijan. Paul Ricard is the first of the triple header races, so expect there to be a lot to be discussed over the course of the next few shows. Hello, Joe. Hello, Izzy. And Formula One returns to Europe this week and to Paul Ricard, which has come back after a year hiatus. How are we all feeling for it? Joe, we'll start off with you. Uh, it, it should be quite a nice to see just Formula One back. You know, it's only a week, but it seems like a very long time since it back here. There's, Considering there was so much that happened in that race, we, we really wanted another one straight away, but we've had to wait a week and now we're back and we're really starting to get into the meat of the season, this this first triple header. It's going to be tough uh, on the teams. Thankfully, there's you know two races at the same track, at least uh, in a couple of weeks' time, Austria, which helps. Uh, but this race hopefully is a good one. It kickstarts the and so it will and I can imagine Izzy you know by the time we get through the next three races in the next three weekends we're going to have a very much big picture of how this championship is going to go between now and when we get to Abu Dhabi in December. Yeah I think it's definitely sort of getting to crunch time Uh, you know triple header followed by a week break and then another triple header um, is a lot for the teams Um, and you know if something goes wrong on that first race of a triple header then that can be very difficult to sort of come back from that. So, um, yes, kind of getting down to crunch time, it'll be interesting to see how the sort of title battles develop over the next few weeks. I can imagine so. And most certainly Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton will be hoping to rebound from their uh, shenanigans, let's say, because Max Verstappen's tie blowout was not his fault by any means. With Lewis Hamilton's was, it was his own error, and that's what cost him potentially a podium finish, which would have seen him back into the lead of the championship going into Paul Ricard, but it's Max Verstappen who is still leading the way on 105 points, four clear of Lewis Hamilton on 101. It's Sergio Perez with his victory for Red Bull in Azerbaijan that moves him up to third on 69 points. Lando Norris, despite getting fifth in Baku, is down to fourth on 66 points. Then Charles Leclerc in fifth on 52, followed by Valtteri Bottas, who's down to sixth on 47. Carlos Sainz is in seventh place for Ferrari on 42, and it's Pierre Gasly up to eight with that excellent podium finish for Alpha Tari. He's now on 31 points overall. Sebastian Vettel in ninth, Aston Martin on 28, then it's Dan Ricciardo in 10th place with 26. Fernando Alonso is next up, quite a long way back actually from Ricciardo, 13 points he's on in 11th place, and Cesar Bonocon in 12th on 12. Then it's Lance Stroll in 13th with nine, followed by Yuki Snowder in 14th with eight. Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio Giovinazzi on one point each. Mick Schumacher, George Russell, Nikita Mazepin and Nicholas Latifi have yet to get off the mark. So when you look at the championship, guys, I mean, it's still very much wide open, isn't it? And given that previous years where either, you know, Lewis Hamilton runs away with it or whoever, this is the kind of championship that we've been after. And the good thing about it is there's a distinct look as to who is potentially challenging for the title and who's not. That's what makes racing what it is for Formula One. Joe, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a very clear dominant two and the mad scramble for third behind, which seems to get more and more congested uh, with every race. Now, that win for Perez leapfrogs him two or three positions. 
uh, well, Bottas not scoring the last two season plummet down and the so the non-finishes didn't really matter in the end it's I don't think either Hamilton or Verstappen are in threat of being caught by Perez even if he goes on a good run I don't see Hamilton and Verstappen dropping that many points so it's very much a case of they're in their own little championship now uh, and they can just focus on what the other's doing they don't particularly need to worry about Perez and Norris and Bottas and Leclerc who are in the chasing pack because the chasing pack are too far away, I think. Is he? You look at the championship, you know, with the top two um, missing out on points in Baku, whereas you've got those like Perez, um, Vettel, and Gasly picking up the big points. Obviously, they're not going to be in the championship battle, but it's still nice to see Bob uh, Moore having a different podium for once. Yeah, I think we got spoiled last year where we had quite a few different podiums. So it's nice to see um, it come back again this season. And, you know, it's good It's good for them. You know, Vettel getting back on the podium and with his new team. Perez is the only driver to have scored with two different teams, uh, to have won, sorry, with two different teams in, in the hybrid era. And, and Vettel's been on the podium with three different teams, uh, I think. Or Perez is, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great to, to see them get back on the podium um, and to get some good points for their teams. Mm-hmm. And of course, with Aston, uh, sorry, with Sebastian Vettel getting the podium for Aston Martin, he's now finished on the podium with four different teams in his Formula 1 career. It's a long time since we've seen that happen. I know that Fangio, Juan Manuel Fangio, that is, he won championships with four different teams, but I can't remember, other than him, the last driver to have won or finished on the podium for four different teams. I'll have to have a look at that in my own time. Going on to the Constructors' Championship, talking of which of teams, Red Bull Racing have extended their margin over Mercedes to 26 points after Mercedes ended Baku scoreless. Then it's Ferrari in third place on 94 points. They're a long way behind Mercedes. The gap is uh, 54 points. McLaren are next up behind in fourth on 92, so two points between those two. And AlphaTauri in fifth, a long way down on 39 there are two points clear of Aston Martin in sixth on 37 and Alpine in seventh place on 25. Alfa Romeo doubling their points total last time out from one to two, but at least they are clear of Haas and Williams who have yet to score a point in 2021. So we go on to Paul Ricard this weekend, guys, which is round seven of this 23 race schedule. Um, and looking at the Paul Ricard circuit, I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with it. First opened in 1971 or 70, but work began on PZ Maget Paul Ricard's track in 1969 with French racers Jean-Pierre Beltois and Henri Pascarolo acting as consultants on the layout. Racing began at the circuit a year later. So it was 1970 when it first began, and then Formula first race there was the following year in 71. Now they've used many different layouts um, over the years, but the one we've used now is the most used layout um, out of all uh, championships that contest there. But it's a 15 turn circuit with two DRS zones. The first one between turns seven and eight, the Mistral Straight between the start of the Mistral Straight and the chicane that intervenes. And the second DRS zone is on the start finish straight. So with the detection point at the beginning of the penultimate turn. I mean, Joe, we look at this track, I mean, you may feel that it is a test track, but it does have some of the gems of which some circuits don't necessarily have. It does. It's especially, I mean, that last sector in particular is a very 
fast, very difficult corners to get right. Uh, they're not corners you'll get massively wrong, but you'll always feel like you can go quicker than you actually are doing around those corners. And it's a very big facility from one end of the track to the other is a big distance because it's all in effectively a really narrow sort of area. So weather could well play a part. It could be raining at one side of the circuit and completely dry at the other, which we saw at Imola as well early in the season, and that produced a pretty good race. I've not checked the forecast yet for this weekend. I don't know if that's a distinct chance, but let's hope it is because we're never upset to see a little bit of rain in Formula 1, and if there isn't, we'll just turn the sprinklers on. Izzy, you've seen two races that Formula One has done at Polycar. I don't know if you've seen any of the sort of classic races um, in like the 80s, particularly the one in 1990, where I think at one point, uh, two Leighton House cars who were previously non-qualifiers at previous rounds that year were actually leading one and two in that race before Alan Prost um, came back to win for Ferrari um, at Polycar before the French Grand Prix was moved to Magny Corps. What's your take on this circuit then? Because I know it's not your favourite, we all know that, but when you see the overtaking that's happening, it's what kinds of makes up for it. Yeah, I mean, it makes my eyes hurt. Um, that's why I don't like it very much. But, you know, we, got, we had a really chaotic start in, in 2018 that sort of, you know, produced some drama. And, um, you know, overtaking is possible on the track, which is obviously what we want to see. We want to see overtakes. We want to see positions changing. Um, and, you know, because of overtaking, you get some uh, sort of stuff happening in, in the closing laps where people are trying to move up positions. Like um, there was a really a battle in 2019 with uh, Ricardo and Norris and Raikkonen getting past both of them and Ricardo going off the track and then getting penalties and it was all you know quite sort of dramatic in the in the closing stages so hopefully we'll see something like that I mean any track where overtaking is possible is a good track in my book so yeah and I suppose if you are going to be taking a grid penalty due to uh, exceeding allocation for uh, power unit components it, this is one of the tracks where you can most certainly afford to take the penalty out unlike some circuits and answering your question, Joe, about the weather for uh, Paul Ricard. Now, given that it's located within the area of Le Casselet, which is where Paul Ricard is, cloudy and hot is what it's expected to be at uh, Paul Ricard this um, Sunday. So it doesn't mean to say we won't get some good racing. I think we will. It's just depending on um, how everyone does in qualifying. And I think the reason why I think this weekend is going to be very, very interesting, guys, is because who's going to gain from what now with these um, new... Well, so, well, now that teams have changed the limbo wings of what's um, been in the headlines. And Izzy, we'll start off with you this time on this. And who do you see coming out on top, given the changes of which the teams are needing to do to comply with the regulations set by the FIA? Well, obviously, in 2018 and 2019, um, Mercedes have been pretty dominant uh, at, at Paul Ricard. Um, and you know, Red Bull were the ones with the flexi wing that they've now sort of been limited on. So, I mean, and, and Mercedes are going to be chomping at the bit to really get, you know, a good race weekend. And I think Max said at the end of uh, the Baku race weekend that he thinks Mercedes will, you know, be doing better at the more traditional tracks rather than the street circuits. So, um I would say hopefully, you know, well, probably Mercedes are, are going to be sort of wanting to get back on top. 
Um, and Red Bull are going to be impacted by the uh, flexi wings not being so flexy anymore. Yeah. Joe, how do you see this weekend going with the, uh, the changes of which the wings are needed to be done? I think I agree that it's going to be more back to, to the normal. Obviously, Red Bull are going to suffer. They wouldn't have left this flexi wing on the car if they didn't think it provided an advantage. And now they've not got it, it will cost them. Uh, and it'll be compounded by the fact that this is a more traditional track, uh, as Izzy said, and Mercedes and Hamilton have won the last two races uh, here. So they'll be very confident in going to make it three in a row. Uh, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did, because I'm not sure if Red Bull have quite got the performance on this kind of track to match Mercedes. Uh, maybe over one lap they could, if Verstappen can pull out a special lap from somewhere, which we know he's capable of, over a race distance, I would, I would back Mercedes. Yeah, I would perfectly agree with that. And I think with Paul Ricard being a one-stop event as well, and Mercedes' straight line speed, I would expect them to be um, within frame to, uh, to come out on top in this. And I think it could be, depending on how the start goes, because the start is everything at Paul Ricard. As Izzy mentioned, in 2018, we had that chaotic start. I think that could well be how it decides the race. But as ever, the race is not won on lap one. And the good news for, for France and for Formula One in general is that up to 15,000 spectators are going to be at attendance for the French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard for each day. So the French Grand Prix is poised to be the best attended round of the 2021 Formula One season so far, with up to 15,000 spectators permitted each day at the event as pandemic-related restrictions continue to be eased in Europe. Fun attendance at Grand Prix so far this year has been varied depending on the country and their respective regulations on gatherings. No spectators were allowed at Imola, Portimao, or at the most recent Grand Prix at Baku, while Barcelona's round was open for the public for race day only and capped at 1,000 people. Monaco was given approval for 40% capacity, which equated to around 7,500 people in grandstands. France's Grand Prix held at Paul Ricard in the Southern Province region did not feature in 2020 owing to the pandemic. Its 2021 event was originally scheduled for June the 27th, but at the behest, or at the behest, if that's uh, how you pronounce it, of Formula One was moved forward by a week to June the 20th. That came in the aftermath of Turkey's June the 13th round, itself a replacement for Canada, being called off with Formula One instead arranging a double header in Austria on June the 27th and July the 4th. Amid the next stage of the French government relaxing its restrictions, which came into effect on Wednesday, a maximum of 15,000 spectators per day will be allowed uh, access into the venue, divided into three zones of 5,000 people. Those attending must present a negative PCR or antigen test taken within 48 hours of arrival, a certificate of full vaccination or a certificate of recovery. Greater attendance is then anticipated at following Grand Prix as respective governments continue to apply roadmaps out of the pandemic, albeit with caution that the situation remains fluid. Austria's government is set to lift further internal restrictions on July the 1st between the Formula One rounds at the Red Bull Ring, leading to expectation that the Austrian Grand Prix can take place in front of a large crowd. There is hope that Britain's round, scheduled for July the 18th at Silverstone, can follow suit. The government has previously, staged, uh, has previously targeted June the 21st as a date when restrictions can be lifted, though this may be delayed due to rising cases of the Delta variant. 
Summer events in Hungary, Belgium and the Netherlands are also set to feature large crowds, with the Dutch government on Friday outlining its intention to ease restrictions further at the end of June. Budapest Puskas Arena is set to be the only stadium at Euro 2020 which begin, well, began at, well, that began on Friday, to welcome spectators at up to 100% capacity. Very interesting. So there we are, guys. I mean, it's good to say 15,000, which is, it's not the highest we've had since the pandemic began. Uh, I think Portsmouth last year had 20,000. But it's a good sign, Joe, and it can only be, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, as they all say. Yeah, it's a start, and a start is all we we needed at the moment. And I think racetrack's probably the best place to trial having a larger amount in, because it's such a big area compared to a football stadium or any kind of sports stadium. In fact, it's spread out over a number of acres, uh, you know, especially if there's a lot of spectator banks or, or grandstands at that particular track, you might as well make use of it, spread them out. You can have plenty of social distancing and 15,000 will probably look like very little because there will be a lot of distancing and it will, it will look sparse, but it's good to know that there'll be so many people there and hopefully they'll be there to, to cheer Pierre Gasly and other French drivers onto a, a strong result on their home track. Mm -hmm. And of course, Espinoc on another home hero. And the Alpine Formula One team, they'll most certainly be wanting to do well um, on home turf. Along with there, there's also um, Formula Three action. And I've, I can't remember if the Porsche Supercop is racing there as well. But either way, there's plenty of racing to look forward to this weekend for, uh, for Paul Ricard and plenty for fans to enjoy. And of course, not to mention, there's the Euros. So it's pretty much sport fever time, is he, isn't it? Yeah, when it gets to the summer, the, the days start getting longer and there's sport every night of the week. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really nice to see to see fans back. I'm definitely getting more and more jealous seeing more and more fans back. Um, but yeah, it, I think it's, you know, the fans are are the sport. You know, that's why why everyone puts so much effort in. It's because of the fans. So to, to see them back in, in grandstands is brilliant. And as Joe said, I think, you know, it's all open air it's all spread out so racetracks are really the perfect place to to sort of safely have hopefully a lot more people back mm -hmm, absolutely and i have to say you know i'm really glad that we're getting some fans there because although last time out in baku it didn't quite feel like it was done behind closed doors because you saw fans literally on their balconies just watching the race itself so it's just almost like the fa that fans were actually there were uh, were actually there at the uh, baku city, uh, city circuit um, but one thing I've learned actually about Baku is, did you know that per litre for petrol is 30p? Can you believe that? Which is, which you compare that to the UK, the UK is, it's four times, more than four times as expensive as that. Incredible. No wonder Baku is such a, such a uh, rich uh, city um, in the world. Anyway, we go on to our next story, and it's to do with Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia has revealed its renders of the F1 pits and paddock complex. So organisers of Formula One's Saudi Arabian Grand Prix has revealed renders of the pits and paddock complex that is under construction ahead of its debut this December. Saudi Arabia will join the schedule as the penultimate round a weekend before Abu Dhabi, with a street circuit located on Jeddah's uh, Corniche, adjacent to the Red Sea. The 6.175 kilometre Jeddah Kunish circuit will feature 27 corners 
and is anticipated to be the fastest street circuit in Formula One with an average lap speed of 250 kilometers an hour expected. The event, which is set to be supported by Formula Two, will be run at night. On Tuesday of last week, race organizers revealed renders of the paddock facility they set to house drivers, teams and other attendees at this December's event. We are delighted to share these exclusive renderings of our stunning pits and team building with the world today, said Prince Khalid bin Sultan Al Abdullah Al Faisal, chairman of the Saudi Automobile and Motorcycle Federation. The pit building stands as a symbol of all that, is, all that this race represents, welcoming, modern and spectacular. With only six months to go until the pinnacle of motorsport reaches Saudi Arabia, preparations are progressing at an incredible rate as our dedicated team gears up for the first ever Formula One Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. We, we can't wait to welcome you to Jeddah in December for a weekend of record-breaking racing and world-class entertainment. Formula One's Saudi Arabian Grand Prix is scheduled for December the 5th. It's picking up now, guys. And I have to say, the looking at the images that's been released, it does look rather, does look rather exciting and something for a Formula One night race. Joe, we'll begin with you. Yeah, I'm, well, all I'm concerned about is, is the track good? Is the racing going to be good? Uh, the rest of it is a nice bonus to have brand new modern buildings that are going to certainly attract attention, but hopefully not attract so much attention that people aren't looking at what's actually happening on the circuit. You know, I, I do worry slightly that maybe it's too fast for a street circuit, because uh, if you go off at whatever speeds they will be going, you know, 250 kilometre an hour average speed, is very quick on any track, let alone a street track where the walls are right next to the to the circuit. And hopefully we don't have any kind of incident like that. Um, but hopefully the race it does provide some some good entertainment and we can't complain with another night race, certainly for the time of day it will be for us. Um, so hopefully, yeah, hopefully Formula One and Formula Two provide some good entertainment. Yeah. And it's just what it needs as well, um, Izzy. And Saudi Arabia, I believe it's three hours ahead of us or four hours ahead of us or something like that. I can't remember. I'd have to have a look at it, but another night race over there. If it's going to be a night race over there, then it would be a night, it'll be nighttime over here pretty much or sun, uh, or sunset um, when it goes ahead in, um, in December. Yeah. I mean, I've just got the, uh, the renders up and I know it's about the track racing, but they do look pretty. Um, and there's a lot of green in them. So I'm hoping that means that they're building it, as a sustainable facility you know we've got the we race as one thing which includes sustainability so hopefully you know it's a perfect opportunity if they're building purpose-built buildings for them to make sure that they're sustainable um so yeah hopefully that's what that's indicating uh, i guess we'll find out when it is all built um but yeah you know love a night race uh it's nice to have another one on the calendar uh, and hopefully it will give us some good racing I hope so too. And remember that Al uh, the Saudi Arabia uh, racetrack is under a 10-year deal from this year. So if it's signed that long of a deal, then we should expect there to be quite a spectacle for when uh, Formula One and of course Formula Two do race um, in Saudi Arabia in December. Very exciting. And it could well be the location where it decides the world championship. Can't forget that. So going from there to Azerbaijan. Now I have spoken about uh, Baku already, but the latest story um, is in is basically this. Formula One's Azerbaijan resulted in record viewership in the United States, according to cable broadcaster ESPN. 
The Formula One race at the Baku City Circuit surpassed the previous round in Monaco as the most watched race of the 2021 or 2020 F1 season in the US, with a peak audience of 1.04 million. It was also the fourth most watched Grand Prix televised on a cable channel in US history, despite starting at 8 o'clock local time on the East Coast and 5 o'clock in the West of the country. AM, that is, not PM. The dramatic race in which title rivals Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton failed to score was won by Mexico's Sergio Perez and drew an average audience of 956,000, which is up on the 2021 average of 911,000. However, the broadcast peaked at 1.04 million for the final few laps when the race was restarted as a result of Verstappen's tyre failure. That made it the most watched Azerbaijan Grand Prix in the country since its debut on the calendar in 2016. F1 has seen an upward viewership trend in the US in recent seasons, with 2021's average up 50% on 2020 and up 36% on 2019. Very exciting and good news, guys, with um, the US tuning in more and more and more to Formula One, as well as maybe else we are watching IndyCar, actually, because we did see a couple of um, IndyCar races in Detroit at the weekend. But, Joe, this is a good, a good um, sign for, um, for, US, for the US, particularly following Formula One. And given that it has it's hosting a Grand Prix this year in Austin and also in Miami. So it's beginning to grow now back in the US is Formula One. It is. It's a good good sign especially that at the time as you mentioned you know 5 a.m getting up only the hardcore really get up at that kind of time to watch formula one as as we know when they race down in australia and at japan and and malaysia and stuff like that so it's very good to see that kind of numbers seven figures for the final few laps as well which is brilliant uh the second race they're going to have from from next year uh, the netflix series all of this is being aimed towards building that market and I wonder if maybe the Indy 500 the week before people were desperate to see some more racing because it was a fantastic event uh, and obviously they had a week off uh, that weekend and came back the weekend just gone so maybe they were desperate for some racing uh, and thought well, I'll give Formula One a go and it was a great spectacle for them to see and hopefully they'll be back uh, this weekend to watch the French Grand Prix and, mm -hmm. and is he you know, with these figures, you would hope that Formula One will continue to put on the spectacle. But what do you think? Part do you think the the viewerships were pretty much increased on the basis of the incidents that we had in the race? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you see on Twitter that the race has been stopped, you know, I guess especially if it was so early in America, you know, five a.m. and eight a.m. depending on on where you are, if you then see you wake up at like 9am or whatever, see on Twitter that the race has been stopped because there's been a load of incidents, then you might turn it on. Um, but even just a little bit of, even if they're not watching the whole races, just more viewership is, is great for the sport because the sport gets more income, this gets more interested, it means they can put on, you know, better spectacles. So whatever, ha for however long they're watching, it, it's still a good thing. And yeah, I have to say, it's good news for the US and I'm really looking forward to see if they, can continue the rise of um, figures uh, in the coming races and with it's been an improvement from last time out in Monaco and better than the average um, viewership trends um, between races or over the course of 2020 and 21 so far it's great to see. 
Now we're going to go on to our next story and it's to do with Williams and their team principal, or was a team principal, Simon Roberts, has relinquished his role as Williams team principal with immediate effects, the Form 1 team had announced on Wednesday. Simon Roberts joined Williams in June 2020 and stepped up to the role of acting team principal in the wake of the Williams family relinquishing ownership to Doralton Capital a few months later. Roberts is, uh, sorry, Roberts's interim role was made permanent for 2021, but as a result of an internal restructure, he will leave the team. Yost Capito, uh, who joined in February as Chief Executive Officer, will take on the responsibilities of team principal. Williams added that FX de Mason, who joined as Technical Director, will take accountability for both trackside and engineering divisions. Simon has played an integral role in managing this transition over the last 12 months, and I'd like to thank him for his great contribution during that time, said Capito. Roberts's spell with Williams came after a lengthy stint with McLaren, which also featured a secondment to Force India. It has been a pleasure to take on the role of team principal following the departure of the Williams family from the sport, Roberts said. However, with the transition well underway, I'm looking forward to a new challenge and wish everyone in the team well for the future. Now, Simon Roberts, guys, he's, well, he's left the team now and Yost Capital taken over. And I don't want to sound, you know, draconian or anything like that, but this may well be a, a, a good thing for the team going forward. Um, Izzy, we'll begin with your reaction to Roberts' um, exit. Yeah, I mean, obviously he uh, he's done a good job of keeping everything steady, you know, in, in quite a tumultuous period for the team. Um but I guess it was, I kind of always thought that he was always going to, he was never going to stay there for, for forever. I don't know if I sort of made that up in my head. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, they, they need new leadership. Obviously, they need, they need to move forward and to try and get back up the grid. And, you know, Jos Capito is CEO. And if he's, you know, taking on the team principal responsibilities, then the buck stops with him. And, and if he fails, then... Who knows what's going to happen? They'll have to bring someone else in. But it, you know, it's, it's. I find it difficult to sort of know what impact it might have. So it'll be interesting to see it in the in the coming few weeks, especially as triple headers are, you know, quite intense. You know, kind of how that all plays out. Um, but hopefully, it will uh, help them move back up the grid again. Yeah, and apparently, um, Simon Roberts became a, in, a company's industrial director before deciding to transfer to McLaren in September 2003 as general manager being responsible for coordinating the manufacturing and assembly process for the test and race team, who then became director of operations for McLaren in 2004. In 2009, he was hired by the Force India team as its chief operating officer for the 2009 season. And on, in October that year, he announced that uh, the Force India had announced that Otmar Safnauer would move to the position of, C, of uh, chief operating officer for the team while Roberts returned to his job at McLaren for 2010. So he's been, he's not just known for what he's done at Williams and Force India, Joe, there's also a bit of McLaren in there as well. And, you know, given how long he's been involved in the industry, particularly in engineering, um, where next for him? It's a great question. You know, um, we've got, you know, I think for him now, he's got to wait and see who else leaves their role in the next coming 12 months where the opportunity is going to arise because I don't know how far down the the metaphorical hierarchy he'll be willing to drop having been right up the top with with Williams he'd want to stay at the top 
uh, even though it's difficult to assess his performance and it'll be the same kind of issue with Capital up until the start of next season because we can't don't really know how much that change is going to improve this year but it's with a look to next year really um I'm, I'm not sure where Roberts will go he's he's got a bit of time off now he can sort of relax and watch and wait for a door to creak open and he's got to make sure he he barged his way through it yeah I'm sure he'll take his time looking over the options and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people out there um, asking for his services, even though it's not to do with Formula 1, it could well be maybe a sports car team or somewhere in um, MotoGP perhaps. So I'm sure he'll assess his options, um, no doubt about it, and he'll take his time over it. So going on to Nikita Mazepin, guys, and uh, he's basically clarified the rumours regarding mandatory military service. Now, more on this, as uh, Hassan Nikita Mazepin has addressed rumours that suggest that he may be forced to serve mil mandatory military service in Russia. Now, Russia has conscription, uh, conscription in place for all males aged between 18 and 27, albeit with exceptions, with avoidance of the draft being deemed a felony. Reports emerged last week that Mazepin, who is enduring his rookie season in Formula One, may be forced to complete military duties in Russia. However, the 22-year-old clarified that he has been undertaking the service through a class once a week, carried out over the course of three years. I'm aware there have been a bit of discussion there, Maspin said. From my side, the situation is very clear. I study in university, and the way it works in Russia, there is a mandatory military service, and there are two ways of serving, if you're fit enough. Option one is finishing university and then going for a year, and option two is if you qualify being fit enough in terms of your fitness results and in terms of your studying results, you can go on to something called like the elite army, which is served in a completely different way. It's one day a week and you're learning to be an officer in reserve. It takes three years, but only one, but only one day a week and it's basically done in a class. This is what I'm doing for already two years and I'm obviously going to continue it for one more year to hopefully graduate as an officer in reserve. Five days ago, I have passed my final exam in university for finishing my first four years. And I'm moving on to get a second master's degree later in the coming two years. Maspin currently sits 19th in the Drivers' Championship after the opening six races of the season awaiting his first points. So what does this mean then, guys? I mean, I don't, I'm not saying this is going to affect his, his racing. You know, he's, he's fairly flexible. He's a very flexible guy um, in terms of managing his Form 1 commitments as well as the... Um, the military uh, commitments over in Russia. But what does this mean to you then, um, Izzy, when you look at that? Um, I mean, he seems like a very busy person. Uh, I wasn't aware that he was studying in university. I don't think I could have done uh, Formula One racing alongside my degree. <laughs> I think I would have just completely, my head would have exploded. Um, but it seems that he's passed uh, and, you know, he's, I mean, I wouldn't say being incredibly successful but then he's in a house so um yeah I mean I guess it seems to be okay he's done the first six races of the season and there doesn't seem to be an issue I guess if it's one day a week in in class that's something you can do online so I you know especially with COVID and travel restrictions I don't know what restrictions there are coming in and out of Russia um but yeah I mean I guess he's saying it's going to be fine so I guess we'll have to take his word for it Joe, you see these things coming around and, you know, there's obviously there's some people saying, oh, well, it may, he may not be able to race in Formula because of his military commitments, but I don't necessarily see that being the case. Do you? No, I 
I think he knows exactly what his situation is. Uh, and said he's got to be before 27, I think, because he said he's got to do that. And he's got plenty of years to, to get this final year of, of classes done. Uh, it reminds me actually of a situation we had with Hyung uh, Min Son, the footballer at Tottenham. He would have had to go for... Uh, military service as well, but he won the Asia Cup, Asia Gold Cup, I think, uh, with his South Korea team. So that made him uh, exempt uh, from the uh, from the military service. I don't know if winning the F1 World Championship will do the same with Mazepin, but I, I don't think that will happen. So he may have to get his classes. Done. Yeah, I'm sure he will most certainly take his time um, whilst he's at it as well. So go back onto the French Grand Prix this weekend, guys. There is some technical insight, which I will go over. And it's to do with how the FIA will test uh, the flexible wings going forward. Now, every year, a technical argument arises which dominates discussion off track. And this year has been no different, even despite the stable regulations. In fact, we've had a few hot topics from McLaren's diffuser to Z flaws, but it's the flexible wing saga that has dominated headlines. Red Bull team boss Christian Horner and Mercedes counterpart Toto Wolff have been locked in a battle over bendy wings, which truly bobbled to the surface after the Spanish Grand Prix. From the onboard camera of the W12 and RB16B during the Spanish Grand Prix, it was evident how the rear wing profiles of the two cars behaved differently, with the RB16B ring, uh, wing, I should say, tending to flex under high speed and high load. Horner countered Mercedes by highlighting how, is, how it is the front wing of the W12 that clearly flexes. After pressure from Wolf to Nicola Tumbasis, technical manager of the FIA, the governing body will introduce more severe technical checks on June the 15th, just in time for the French Grand Prix. Many teams have expressed their unhappiness at this, as it will likely involve a total redesign of the structure of the compositional materials heavily affecting the budget to make the wings more rigid to pass the FIA's tests. Over the years in F1, the technical subject of flexible wings has often made a comeback and has led to an adjustment of the rules as team engineers managed to find tricks to circumvent technical checks. First of all, it should be noted that no team is running an illegal wing as they have all passed the FIA's current checks. But with a doubling of the load, they will need to make changes to pass these new tests. The advantages of having a flexible rear wing are essentially attributable to a reduction in drag on the straights. The airfoil flexing due to the vertical load that increases with higher speed tends to assume a position with less incidence. Then when you enter the, the deceleration phase, the downforce is reduced and the wing returns to its standard position. The carbon material has a certain amount of memory allowing it to return to its intended position and on a structural level, it is positive that the wings flex, although not excessively. Today's single-seaters at the highest levels of downforce are calibrated to generate over 2,000 kilograms of vertical load on the wheels, and are therefore the fastest single-seaters through the corners in history. The technical regulations clearly establish in Article 3.8 that no aerodynamic parts except the DRS and the front brake sockets can move, creating perfectly fixed aerodynamic structures is practically impossible as no body in nature turns out to be infinitely rigid. The FIA essentially limits itself through technical bending checks that certain tolerance levels are not exceeded. The main controversy arises from the fact that Red Bull and five other teams managed to take the, uh, 
managed to take advantage of this, leaving the other four at a disadvantage. The static controls the FIA used to simulate load simply cannot recreate 2,000 kilograms of force and are therefore tested at much lower weights with the assumption that they will deform in a linear manner, but they simply aren't. The FIA, however, makes use of Article 3.9.9 through which it can modify or introduce new verification tests if, tests, sorry, if there is a suspicion that some aerodynamic part of the car is not compliant with Article 3.8. Precisely for this reason, the regulatory changes will come into force on June the 15th are not unusual. The leaders of the FIA were also lenient with the teams, giving them time until the French Grand Prix to make all the rear wings conform to the new rules. Specifically, the rules of Articles 3.9.3 and 3.9.4 were simply tightened, where the various parameters and efforts to be applied when amplified, uh, were amplified. In fact, from the French Grand Prix, the rear wings will be subjected during the FIA checks to vertical forces of 100 kilograms plus 25 kilograms compared to before, with a maximum flexion angle to always be respected of one degree. At the extremes of the airfoil, a horizontal rearward force of 75 kilograms will be applied compared to 50 kilograms. Overall, the wing must not exceed one millimeter of flexion, while the previously allowed tolerance was a maximum of three. A presents uh, it presents a nice challenge for the technicians, especially for those teams like Rebel, who are very, uh, very borderline with the old regulation. It will undoubtedly affect the teams' budget, which, remember, must respect the financial constraints imposed by the sporting regulations. That is the budget cap. So there we are, guys. And finally, I was able to find that article that I've been looking for in the last few weeks. Article 3.8, let's not forget that. And I have to say, you know, Looking from this weekend onwards, I think this is, gives us an idea. If we look at the onboard cameras on the rear wings and the front wings, we should know for certain whether these wings are rigid or not. Izzy, we'll begin with you. Yeah, um, I have to say a lot of that is very technical. And I did a journalism degree, not an engineering degree, but I do understand the basic principles. Um, and I know it, it does seem like sort of, you know, going from one millimetre of flexion to three millimetres going from three millimeters to one millimeter is not necessarily a lot, but you know, these cars are so sensitive and you do a tiny thing and it can affect it so much. So I, I think it is, you know, a relatively big difference. And I think that the, the bit that I'd be most annoyed about if I was in charge of an F1 team is, is the budget. Cause you know, racing's expensive and to have to redesign your rear wing so that it's more rigid is, is clearly, um, a relatively large undertaking so i can understand uh whether where the teams thought they'd found a loophole and then uh, have been sort of i guess effectively if you're christian horner penalized for it um but yeah it, sh it should definitely be interesting to see how it all sort of straightens out uh, and and how it affects the teams going forward and with these re regulations now tightened joe from three millimeters to one millimeter in terms of flexion with the exception of drs of course you know it's going to be very much if you exceed this amount, it's a slam dunk disqualification. Yeah, well, like Izzy, I did a journalism degree and that too went straight over my head, as well, a lot of it did anyway. Um, so, yeah, that's what I, you want instant disqualification if your car's not legal. That, that is the rule and it will always be the rule, I hope, anyway. Um, so, yeah, hopefully this is the end to the saga unless... I wonder if you're Red Bull, do you bring the flexi wing anyway and see what happens 
when it's put under the FIA test and if it passes. Uh, you can't imagine it will. I'm sure they'll have been working on a, a new wing that's more rigid, ready to put on the car. But if I was Red Bull, I certainly would try just in case, just in case, because there must be some kind of benefit to it. And, you know, maybe, maybe just maybe it might squeak through the, the cracks and pass the test, but I can't see that happening. No, I mean, to be honest, I think it's abundantly clear as to how this Red Bull win would have uh would have taken through the test, I'm sure it would be uh, deemed as uh, illegal as it's blatantly shown on the onboard cameras. And it would be the same with Mercedes as well with their front wing and a lot of the other teams' as, uh, wings as well over the course of the weekend. But we'll see how the practice times uh, come along as they do before the FIA do their mandatory uh, tests for the weekend because I'm sure they do um, make sure uh, all the wings are as flexible as they should be in compliance with the regulations. So it's the French Grand Prix this weekend, guys, going back to it. And Lewis Hamilton's won the previous two races at Paul Ricard. Is he going to make it a hatchet this weekend? Joe, we'll begin with you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, how do you think he's going to do it? Is, is pole position the necessary target for him this weekend? Or is it the, the fact if he gets off the line well from second on the grid to Verstappen, is that what, is that what going to help him get victory? It's both, really. I think you want pole. It gives you the best chance of getting a good start. Uh, and we saw in, in Imola that you know you don't have to start on pole to lead into the first corner. Um, so if he gets the start and qualifying right, it's all in his hands. Then. And we've seen so many times before that when Hamilton gets out front and he gets in a rhythm, he's extremely difficult to stop. And I don't see anyone being able to do so. Yeah. Is he Hamilton for the win, do you think? Um, and if so, how is he going to do it? Yeah, I, I think I definitely agree uh, with with Hamilton for the win. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think Max sometimes pulls out these these laps from from nowhere. So you know, whether Hamilton is sort of P one or P two on the grid, it's not necessarily the end of the world if he doesn't get pulled, as so long as he gets a good getaway and, like Joe says, gets out in front and, and gets into that rhythm. Um, but yeah, I think he'll be desperate to get back into that rhythm out front. Um, and I think he's uh, pretty, you know, mentally strong. So I think he'll sort of achieve that. And what about the home heroes? I mean, Pierre Gasly, on the back of that brilliant podium for him for Alfa Tauri at the weekend, he'll be aiming for a, um, a very, very strong result um, here, Joe. And boy, if he could do it here at Paul Ricard, how, how exciting would that be for the French crowd? Yeah, we'll certainly cheer cheer up those those fifteen thousand that are going to be lucky enough to be at the Grand Prix on on Sunday. Uh, AlphaTauri, I think, have had a couple of issues with executing good qualifyings into good races. Certainly at the start of the year, uh, I know Bahrain, they had some Gasly had some contact which put him out of out of contention. And I think again at Imola, if I remember rightly, um, they've improved on that in the last few races. But they do need to just make sure that when they qualify well, which Gasly tends to do, he follows it up on the, the Sunday with a solid race. I think they'll be happy with just points finish for both cars. Uh, Sonoda's been a little bit more up and down this year. And Alpine as well, obviously a home race for the team, not just one of its drivers. They'll be really keen to do well, but I haven't seen a great deal from them to suggest that they're going to upset the apple cart massively. I mean, points are definitely on the table, 
but I think a podium, even with a bit of a wild race, might be out of their reach. Yeah, I can imagine so. And we don't see too many failures on um, on the quarry car circuit. There is a lot of runoff occasions to avoid an accident or something. So, Izzy, other home heroes, you've got Esteban Ocon, you've got Alpine, and you look at, you know, both which together as a whole, French driver in a French car. What's their target for this weekend? Because Alpine with Mbels, did it actually okay, but it was such a shame that Ocon couldn't be within the frame of points um, because of his turbocharger failure in the opening stages. Yeah, I mean, um, Alonso had a really good last last two laps in Baku. Was it P10 up to P6 or something like that? Um, so I guess hopefully they'll they'll be targeting at least a double points finish. I don't know that their pace has been particularly uh, strong uh, strong this year. Um, so I think they'll be looking to sort of fix that and then hopefully get both cars, uh, you know, in in the points, especially as they're in front of their home crowd. Mm-hmm. And just to remind you of the times for the sessions over in the UK, so going by British summer time, um, 10.30 a.m. for practice one on Friday, and it's uh, two o'clock for practice two. Saturday, the 19th of June, practice three is at 11, followed by qualifying that begins at 2 p.m. British summer time. And the race will be at 2 p.m. British summer time. So no need for the uh, organizers to shift it by another hour in clash of um, any Euros games. If you remember three years ago, actually, three years ago, Joe, that um, the French Grand Prix uh, race time had to be extended by another hour than usual because of uh, England's group stage game against Panama, if you, if you can remember that. Uh, I can, yeah. It was a it was a very good day for, for us England fans. A 6-1 win. It's a, you know, the race was okay, but we were all too busy over the moon at the result we'd had and we were convinced it's coming home. Uh, I don't know if we are now or not. I guess you'll have to ask. I'm, I'm keeping reserved for now. We'll wait for till after the group stage before I make my mind up. But yeah, but I mean, we've still, got, uh, we've still got Scotland and the Czech Republic to get through, so <laughs> there's that to bear in mind. But you know, I can't wait for it. And I think maybe if it does clash with one of the Austrian races, um, I don't really know. We don't know for certain if we will get as far as we will do, like the quarterfinals or the semi-final stages. But it'd be still very, very nice for England to get that far um, in a clash with um, with a Grand Prix. That would be like the Austrian Grand Prix or something like that. But we'll find out soon enough. Predictions then, guys. Um, I think we know who we've shown we'd go for the race win. But Paul Sitter and our top three. We begin with you, Izzy. Um, I'm going to go Verstappen on pole. Then top three, Hamilton, Verstappen, Perez. Okay, Joe? It's always that third one that's difficult, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm going to go for a Hamilton Grand Slam with Bottas second and Verstappen third. I think Mercedes will be extremely strong this weekend. Yeah, they could really do a one-two finish given their uh, calamities in the last two races. They really need a strong result to um, to fight back uh, in the constructors as well. And if they can do that, they'll most certainly put them right back in the frame going into the Red Bull ring, which we all know will be Rebels' home races as well. So Mercedes are in desperate need of a strong result here in France this weekend. We'll leave the show there, folks. Thank you to everyone that's tuned in. Next week, Tom Featherston, Jade, uh, Jordan Haynes and Menena Manatai will be with me to review the French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard. From Joe, Izzy, and all of us at Motorsport Week, enjoy the racing this weekend, and it's goodbye.